Last week, we looked at Jesus' high priestly prayer, where Jesus prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for us, those who would believe in him. He prays specifically for his glory, for our holiness, and for church unity. And now Jesus ends his prayer, and he leaves the upper room, and from this section that we're looking at this morning, all the way until the end of chapter 19, we're going to be looking at the sufferings of Jesus, the passion of Christ. He'll be betrayed and arrested in our passage this morning, and yet we will see that this does not take Jesus by surprise. He's not some helpless victim, but he's in complete control of the situation. Take a look at John chapter 18, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these verses this morning, we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit to understand what they say, what they mean, and why they matter. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, wow, what a passage. We have Judas, the betrayer, leading this small army to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. We have the enemies of Jesus falling to the ground because of the authority that he has as he speaks. And we have an impulsive Peter whipping out a sword trying to defend Jesus. Someone's ear gets cut off. Things escalate pretty quickly in this passage. 
And John gives us some details that the other gospel accounts don't. He tells us that Peter is the one who cuts off Malchus's ear. And he also tells us the servant's name was Malchus. And we don't know why he tells us his name. But there is one detail that is very significant, and I believe John wants us to notice it. And that's where Jesus is when all of this happens. He and his disciples have left the upper room, and in verse 1 it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. Where does Jesus go when his hour has come? A garden. And we know from the other Gospels that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had prayed for the Father to glorify him, and we know that this glorification is going to happen by means of the cross. And so it's very important for us to notice here that as Jesus heads to the cross to begin his work of redemption, to die for the sins of his people, he begins it in a garden. That's important. John wants us to make the connection between this passage and Genesis 3. As the Savior enters the garden to redeem his people from sin, we remember that it was in the Garden of Eden where mankind fell into sin. This is not a coincidence. Jesus begins his suffering in a garden because Adam fell in a garden. Jesus is the last Adam who has come to redeem his people. Joel Beakey says this, reflecting on the Garden of Eden and Gethsemane. What a contrast in those two gardens, Adam in the Garden of Eden and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What a reversal of roles between Adam's sin and Jesus's righteousness. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was black. In Eden, Adam and Eve dialogued with the serpent. In Gethsemane, the last Adam prayed to his father. In Eden, Adam and Eve were surrounded with glory, harmony, and beauty, and yet refused to obey. In Gethsemane, despite being surrounded with bitterness and disharmony and sorrow, the Savior suffered and was obedient unto death. In Eden, Adam was conquered by Satan. In Gethsemane, Christ conquered Satan. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ stepped out into the moonlight. In Eden, Adam fell before Satan. In Gethsemane, soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, grace was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ could say of those you have given me, I have lost none. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ took the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam's hand reached out to grab sin. In Gethsemane, Christ volunteered his hands to be bound for sin, to pay for it. 
In Eden, Adam was guilty and arrested by God in the cool of the day. In Gethsemane, Christ was innocent and arrested in the middle of the night. Praise be to God, Christ regained all that was lost in Adam and even more. Amen. Because the fall began in a garden, redemption began in a garden. Jesus comes as the last Adam to conquer the evil one, to atone for the sins of his people, to conquer death and bring about eternal life. What we see in this passage is that Jesus is in total control. He has come to this garden on purpose. And we will see three things in this passage. Three things I want you to notice. We'll see Jesus's willing obedience to his father, Jesus's authority over his enemies, and Jesus's protection of his disciples. Jesus's willing obedience to the father, Jesus's authority over his enemies, and Jesus's protection of his disciples. And the main point, what I hope you see in the text this morning is this, is that our salvation and security is in Jesus, who willingly drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Our salvation and security is in Jesus, who willingly drank the cup of God's wrath for us. All right, so let's consider first Jesus's willing obedience to the Father. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. Back in chapter 13, he had told his disciples that one of them would betray him. And remember what he does? He gives that morsel of bread to Judas, signifying that he is the traitor. And then John tells us that Satan enters into Judas. And Jesus says to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And so Judas leaves. And we see in this passage, he leaves to go procure a band of soldiers, some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And while Judas is doing that, Jesus is spending some intimate moments with his disciples, teaching them and preparing them for what's about to happen. And then he prays. And then he and his disciples head to the garden where they often met. Now keep in mind, Jesus knows that Judas will betray him. And in verse 2, John tells us that Judas knew that the garden was a place that Jesus would likely go. So why does Jesus go to the garden? Well, he didn't go there to hide. He didn't go there to avoid being arrested. He went out of his way to make himself available going to the garden, knowing that Judas knew where he was going to be was part of the way that Jesus enacted his own words from John chapter 10, where he says, I am the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. What did he say after that? I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. 
And that's what we see in this passage. Jesus goes to his death willingly and voluntarily in obedience to the Father. He is the one who lays down his life. He's not taken against his will. He willingly comes forward. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed. He knows that he's going to be arrested and put on trial and suffer and put on a Roman cross. And yet knowing all of this, he comes forward. He doesn't wait for Judas and, and the entourage to arrive. He meets them on their way. Jesus comes forward. He had come for this moment to lay down his life for his people. He's not some helpless victim. He greets his captors. Matthew Henry said, when Jesus had fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves and fish, the people tried to force him to take a crown and wished to make him a king. And yet in this moment, he withdrew and hid himself. But when they came to force him to the cross, he offered himself. He comes forward and says, whom do you seek? All throughout John's gospel, there are some sayings that have this double meaning. Jesus says something, and yet there is a, a deeper spiritual meaning present in what he says. And we see that in this question that Jesus asked those who came to arrest him, we have that double meaning. He asks, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? The one thing that God wants for you and me is for us to seek the Savior, to seek Jesus of Nazareth, to believe in him. And now these men are not seeking Jesus for the right reasons. They're seeking him to arrest him, to kill him. And yet, with this text, we are also confronted with the question, as we see Jesus being willingly obedient to his Father by offering up his life, we are confronted with this question. And the whole purpose of John writing this gospel is so that people would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. And so the text is asking you the question as well, whom do you seek? Are you seeking the Savior for your salvation? If you're a Christian, are you continuing to seek him, looking to him, desiring to know his ways, considering his promises? Are you seeking him in, in your obedience to him? Whom do you seek? Jesus comes forward willingly. And then even at the end, in, in verse 10, Peter whips out a sword and cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear, and Jesus stops him. And, and what we know from Luke's account is the fact that that guy's ear actually gets healed. Jesus places his hand on his ear, and, it, and he heals it. That's awesome. But in this account, Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away 
because he is not going to be protected by his disciples. He has come for all of this to happen. He came to lay down his life for sinners. Octavius Winslow, a 19th century preacher, 19th century preacher said this, who delivered Jesus up to die? It wasn't the Jews for envy. It wasn't Pilate for shame. It wasn't Judas for money. But it was God the Father for love. God the Father giving his Son for us. And it was Christ giving himself for us. Christ willingly gave up his life for your sins and mine. And that's what we see here in this passage. He went to the garden so that his captors would find him. He came forward. He stopped Peter because Peter was trying to prevent him from what he needed and was willing to do. Everything about the garden is focused on the willing obedience and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He asked Peter that question. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is this cup that Jesus is talking about? Jesus is referencing back to the Old Testament. In Isaiah, it was called the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath towards sin. And Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that you deserve. He drank every last drop on the cross. On the cross, he drank it to the full. And this is a lesson that Peter found so hard. As Jesus was telling his disciples that he must suffer many things and be killed, what does Peter say to Jesus? Far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. And what does Jesus say in response? Get behind me, Satan. Peter loved God. Peter loved Jesus and he hated the wickedness and evil in this world, but he failed to understand the purpose of God. Here in the garden, Jesus is saying to Peter, there is a cup I must drink. I'm willing to drink it. And that should give all of us confidence in our faith. Because how will you know that Jesus will receive you with how sinful you are? When you sin today or you sin tomorrow and your conscience feels guilty, how do you know that Jesus won't give up on you? Because he drank the cup of God's wrath for you if you believe in him. He already went to the cross 
He already conquered. He already atoned for the sins of his people. And so the very fact that Jesus says to Peter here, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me should be the greatest comfort to your soul. If he drank it to the full, then that means there is only blessing for you if you believe in him. There is only forgiveness and mercy and grace even when we sin. Amen? There's new mercies every morning because Jesus willingly drank the cup. And so find great comfort the next time that you think you've out the grace of God. Remind yourself that he has drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf. You are forgiven if you believe in him. And when we realize that he drank the cup, we'll want to obey him will want to be more like him and do things that please him. The gospel is what should fuel our repentance and our obedience. Okay, so we've seen that Jesus was willingly obedient to the Father. We also see his authority over his enemies in this passage. Jesus comes forward, he confronts his captors, and he asks them, whom are you seeking? Now look at verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> That's awesome. What an awesome moment. But unfortunately, some liberal commentators on this passage say nothing miraculous is happening here. They say Jesus might have caught them off guard coming forward, so the men must have tripped. Seasoned, battle-worn Roman soldiers got scared because a guy came out of nowhere in the middle of the night. Don't think so. I don't think that's what John is saying here. Look at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. These men were overwhelmed because of the deity of Jesus, as if they were driven to their knees because of the name that Jesus uses here. He doesn't just respond by saying, yep, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. What does he say? He says, I am he. In the Greek, ego and me. I am. Jesus has used this phrase before in the Gospel of John. We have those seven great I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And so when Jesus uses that title, I am, he is revealing who he is and what he has come to do. And now here Jesus says, I am. He's using the divine name of Yahweh, the name that he gave Moses at the burning bush. 
And what he is saying by using that name, he is saying, I am God. I am God. And what happens when he uses that name? John says, they drew back and fell to the ground. And just so you know, a band of soldiers here was a couple, hundred soldiers, definitely overkill and coming to arrest one man. But John clearly wants us to think that if Jesus could drive all these men to the ground by saying one word, what could have hindered him from escaping the cross? Now, he is in complete control in this situation. He is the king who has all power and authority. No one is coming to take his life against his will. While it seems that Jesus and his disciples are outnumbered, what John is revealing here is that Judas, the soldiers, the servants, and the Pharisees, they're the ones who are outnumbered outnumbered by the God who made them and came to redeem his people. They think they're finally getting their way, but in reality, they're just playing into the plan of God. And as they're still on the ground, look at verse 7. So Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is in total control here. This is his hour. It's not theirs. He has complete authority in the situation. And he shows this by asking them the question again and getting them to say his name again. As they're recovering from being overwhelmed, Jesus reminds them why they're there. <laughs> they're there for him. He has complete authority over his enemies. We've seen his willing obedience to his father, his authority over his enemies, and we will see also his protection of his disciples. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus was more concerned about the safety of his disciples than himself. In this moment of great betrayal, where hundreds are coming to arrest him, Jesus is still thinking about his disciples and how to protect them. Jesus is the good shepherd who protects his flock. Think about it, when we're betrayed, the last thing we think about is how we can bless and help other people. But our Lord is so different. In the midst of betrayal, as people are coming to arrest him, he says, take me, but don't take them. Let them go. Here Jesus is standing as the king thinking about his people because he came to protect and redeem them. But now in verse 9, John says that because Jesus asked that the disciples be let go, 
This fulfilled what he had said before about not losing even one of those that the Father had given him. Some argue that what Jesus has said about not losing any whom the Father has given him referred to eternal life and not to physical protection. So how could Jesus allow allowing the disciples to flee in this moment be a fulfillment of what he had promised about eternal life? Well, John saw Jesus' protection of his disciples in this moment as a way to spare them so that he could make provision for their salvation. And so to preserve the disciples at this moment was to preserve them spiritually. It symbolized their spiritual preservation. Jesus kept them. He guarded them. He shepherded them so that he did not lose even one And as we see Jesus here defending and protecting his disciples in the garden, we can be assured that his heart is the same towards us. He will not let us go. He will hold us fast. It's Jesus in the garden making sure that your faith won't fail willingly suffering in your place so that he could say to the Father that those you have given me, I have lost none. He keeps you. He is the good shepherd. While the shepherd was taken, the sheep were allowed to flee away unharmed. So what a comfort is that for us who are in Christ? And and why does Jesus do this? Why why does Jesus do this? Because of the love and compassion that he has for his people. J.C. Ryle says this, He loved us and gave himself for us cheerfully, willingly, gladly, in order to make atonement for our sins. It was the joy set before him which made him endure the cross and despise the shame and yield himself up without reluctance into the hands of his enemies. Let this thought abide in our hearts and refresh our souls. We have a Savior who is far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. If we are not saved, the fault is all our own. Jesus is just as willing to receive and pardon as he was willing to be taken prisoner to bleed and to die. And that's what he does. In verse 12, it says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. It's easy to pass over that passage, but think about it. There's a very powerful image here. You have all these soldiers who have fallen down because of Jesus' word. But nothing changes in them. They get back up, and here they are arresting Jesus. Think about this. This is the God who gives life and breath to all things. The God who is eternal. And he is willing to have himself bound as a prisoner. In Isaiah, it says that he was numbered with the transgressors. He was treated like a criminal. Jesus was treated as if he was a violent criminal. 
because of your sin and because of my sin. It says he is bound. They bound him. If we understand what is happening here, Jesus is willingly offering up his life. And so these soldiers are binding up the sacrifice. Just like Abraham bound up Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. Now here we have the lamb that Abraham said that God would provide. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was bound so that you might go free. Just a few thoughts before we end. We see Jesus willingly submitting his will to the Father. He was willing to drink the cup that we deserve to drink. He was not some helpless victim. He had complete control over the entire situation. He has all authority. He's the one who can knock over hundreds of soldiers with just a word about who he is. And he loves you. He has compassion towards his disciples. He desires for their protection so that none of them fall away. And so you need to know the greatness of the love of Christ for you. That's why he came. That's why he went willingly. Friends, the gospel message is not only for lost people. The gospel message is not only for lost people. We as Christians need it. We need it daily. We need it hourly. Every second to sustain us, to keep us from sin, to remind us of our identity, that it's in Christ, to motivate us towards love and good works, to beat down the pride within our own hearts, and to protect us from despair. The Apostle Paul says in Romans to the Roman church, to Christians, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded and rejoice in the love of Christ. If the gospel message is boring to you, if the gospel message doesn't affect you, then something is wrong. Though we are entirely undeserving, though we are entirely undeserving, Jesus has loved us to the full and to the end. For the Gospel of John, the betrayal in the garden not only displays the depth of human sin and depravity, we see that in Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. We see that in the religious leaders who claimed to believe in God and yet came to the garden to bind him in order to destroy him. In the garden, we see not only the depth of human sin, but we see the depth 
of the grace and mercy of God. God removed the first Adam from the garden, and yet he entered himself as the second Adam in order to offer up himself for our salvation and security. Our salvation and security is in Jesus, who willingly drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, who willingly gave himself for us, who suffered in the garden and took on the punishment that we deserved. He drank the cup of wrath on our behalf. We're thankful that he is the good shepherd who protects and keeps us. And yet, Lord, we confess that we often forget this. And instead of seeking Christ, we seek worldly things. Help us to see the gospel more clearly. Help us to draw closer to Christ. Give us the grace to seek you and trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.